There was uh, an auction for uh, offshore New York, at least offshore New York, and it prog- it progressed so many rounds that it lapped into the next day. And there's a new round every 20 minutes. It literally, they oh. had to press pause at the end of the day one and say, we ought to go to bed. <laughs> We're going to pick up at nine in the morning. And they had not planned that it would go that long. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we've got a great guest. Attorney Kevin Ewing is here to talk with us. He is a partner at Bracewell LLP. And he works out of their Washington, D.C. office uh, for their law firm. So he's been with Bracewell for 30 years. And of course, one of his specialties is offshore wind. So we're really excited to have him today. Today's conversation is superb as he walks us through everything you'd want to know about the legal and regulatory hurdles behind offshore wind. So start to finish, you're going to get a really deep insider's look into just how far along offshore wind has come here in the U.S., and where it's going, and all the details in between, leasing, auctions, how they determine prices for these offshore sites, um, the environmental studies. You know, We asked him, we picked his brain about lawsuits, all these other things um, that are really, really interesting, just about the overall challenges that the U.S. is facing trying to get this 30 gigawatt plan out by 2030. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the links of the show notes below, as well as links to Rosemary's YouTube channel, which she puts out new wind energy and renewable energy content every single week. So without further ado, we're going to jump to our conversation with Kevin Ewing, attorney from Bracewell. All right. So, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us with the, on the show. We're really excited to have you here. Hey, Dan. And it's great to be here. It's a fun topic and a great time to be talking about it. Yeah, obviously, this is going to be a really big year for uh, for offshore wind here in the U.S. And I know a lot of our listeners are really eager to get kind of like the, the nuts and bolts and some of the insider um, game of, of offshore. So, you know, we know in talks with you that your goal is to get to good outcomes for everyone here in the U.S. So not just the public, but also the developers and, of course, you know, the environment. So getting all those different you know, perspectives taken care of is really complex. It takes a lot of uh, regulation. There's obviously a lot of, you know, policies involved to get these wind farms from conception all the way to completion. So obviously the Biden administration has, you know, have this big goal of 30 by 30, so 30 gigawatts by 2030. So can you kind of give us some of the background and fill us in? Like, how is that process all going? It's a, it's a really ambitious goal, but a very exciting one. I think it's galvanized uh, not just the industry and the administration, but it's galvanized a, a lot of folks in technology um, to continue to develop, um, you know, their their products to take advantage of this impetus from from this particular administration. But it's not just this administration. We're, we're, we've been developing uh, the offshore wind industry in the U.S. really for um, more than a decade. And what we're seeing now is is sort of the hockey stick part, uh, where it where it leaps into the public view. It's um, it it becomes uh, very exciting as real projects uh, start uh, getting real permit approvals and 
And uh, very shortly, uh, in fact, right now, we'll have the first construction of a of a utility scaled offshore wind project. So it's it's coming together quickly. Um, uh, if you if you consider that it's been ten years in the make. So there's been a number of leases issued. Um, there's a lot of projects associated with these leases, and there's been a lot of COP applications issued. And how is that pipeline going? I mean, it takes a long time. It could be a couple of years between. Um, we know when the lease is issued and the public comment periods, all this stuff. How does that all sort of like move together? And are, do you feel like right now we're on track for that 30 by 30 goal? You know, I think we are. Uh, and that's that's uh, fun to say, uh, considering how long it's it's taken to get here. But, you know, when you do the numbers, um, uh, there are about 17 leases that are currently uh, issued. These are offshore leases for the development of projects. And many of those leases are large enough. Uh, think 120, 130,000 acres. They're large enough to support more than one project. And so 17 leases, more than 20 projects uh, that are in the pipeline. And then uh, you alluded to it earlier this past year, 2021, we had two approvals for the first two utility scale uh, projects out there uh, come through this particular administration. And they'll now move to the construction phase. So what I'd say is just numerically, um, we've issued a bunch of leases. We have more issuances pending. Maybe we'll talk about that, the, the auctions that are slated for this year. And several of the projects that have been um, developed on those leases are now coming to fruition, which means they're ready to be built uh, and, and enter the actual power market uh, over the next few years. So the, the lease process and living in Massachusetts, we're going through the Vineyard Win and a couple other projects. And we went through Block Island a couple of years ago. The lease, the leases uh, are just for a generic area that has been outlined sort of on the ocean, just a couple of squares on the ocean of where those leases are. How much effort has gone into defining those um those demarcation lines, it's not just, I assume it's not just random. That's actually been some, a lot of thought going into it beforehand. That's exactly right. Um, what we call the area identification uh, process is, is really quite rigorous. It takes a long time, it takes many years. Um, it's done collaboratively between the federal government, uh, state governments, uh, inputs from tribal nations, from the public, uh, and from the uh, commercial industry. It progresses a, according to a couple of different pathways, but uh, some common elements are, uh, well, first, uh, one could actually propose to the government a particular area on the offshore and say, hey, we, a developer, for example, are really interested in building a project there because we've looked at the wind data and we think there's a great wind resource that we can capture for power and bring it to shore. Um or on its own initiative, the federal government, which has jurisdiction over this offshore outer continental shelf area, the, the federal government on its own initiative can also say, let's initiate a, a planning uh, process uh, uh, in general. They do that typically uh, with a lot of input from the federal state task forces that are uh, exist both on a regional and an individual state basis. And over a course of years, uh, you progress through a, a couple of iterations. You start kind of, kind of big, uh, as it were, with um, 
with an with a planning area as it's called and then within that you then you refine that and I'll talk about why you're refining it and and what interests are taken into account in a moment but you refine the planning area into an RFI area and RFI is is the area that's actually sent out by the federal government to the public and says hey we're requesting information and indications of interest and input if if we were to do some leasing within this RFI area and so you get some commercial input but you also get those uh, comments that help shape the future lease areas concerns maybe they're fishing areas maybe there's uh, important uh, habitat uh, a number of different factors come into play after the RFI area it progresses to a call area and a call is another instance where the federal government goes out to the public not just industry or or the states, the whole public is involved and they, and they can look and, and comment on that call area. And there's further refinement then into a wind energy area. You see how many steps there are. Yeah. The wind energy area, a WEA, uh, W-E-A, it is, uh, even tighter and it starts to take real shape. Often they look like these, uh, you know, parallelograms and, you know, interesting geometries that we all learned about in, in like junior high school. And I can't remember exactly, but the polygons, right? Yeah. Polygons on the OCS that begin to take nips and tucks to make sure that certain areas are omitted and other areas are included to capture good resource. And, and then there's another last step, which is itself multiple sub steps. And, and that is the lease area itself. A wind energy area, that polygon may ultimately be able to contain multiple lease areas that are highly integrated, highly refined in their outline, uh, might be a 100,000 acres in size a piece or, or more or less, just to give you a, a size uh, indicator. And that lease area is then put out to the public first as a proposal and then as a final uh, uh, uh uh, notice uh, that will be placed into auction. And it's at that point that the lease area is really s- pretty much set and it is sold um, to the best bidder, which is not always the highest bidder, but but there are a number of considerations there. And then it is awarded. So that process of planning, I know that was a multi-step answer, but that's actually important uh, because these are long-term projects out there. Uh, they'll they'll exist for decades, and so that upfront planning is awfully important, not just to the federal government, but for all the other stakeholders involved to make sure that what ultimately is leased and developed uh, is the right stuff in the right place. So by the time it gets to this auction process, have you already done some preliminary environmental assessments? Have you already got an idea about whether the communities are going to support them, about their, if there's sufficient um, like port infrastructure or like what is actually done? Because I know that people still have to, developers still have to put in their planning approvals and, you know, obviously go through those processes. But have you made a pretty good early guess that it's going to be okay environmentally and for communities especially? That's a great question. Of course, uh, environmental considerations and supply chain considerations are super important to the success of any offshore project, uh, wind or otherwise. Um, let's take environment first. Uh, you bet there is a bunch of impact analysis that is conducted early on before the auction of the lease itself. So before there's actually an issuance of a lease, this is very important. The federal goes, the federal government goes through a multi-agency um, impact analysis uh, of what it would mean to lease that area. 
uh, in terms of impacts to the environment. And that's the benthic community, the marine community, transient and non-transient species. It is water quality. It is air quality. It is all the aspects of the environment that are considered at the least stage or has been considered uh, by the least stage. However, that is by no means the end of the analysis. That's really just the beginning of the analysis because once the lease is issued, that is not an approval to actually develop anything. You don't even have the right to develop anything. What that lease gives you is the exclusive right to ask permission to do further studies. It's not even ask permission to like develop a project. It is to do further studies. And uh, that's the SAP, the site assessment stage. And the site assessment uh, plan is something you propose to the federal government. And once they approve it, if they approve it, then you as a developer conduct a whole lot of additional, much more granular uh, assessments, uh, particularly of the, of the areas that would be directly impacted by um, building anything in the, in the lease area. This then becomes information that uh, in the next step informs the construction and operation plan, which is a massive submission, thousands of pages, that you submit and that is the subject of the largest environmental uh, impact analysis and environmental impact statement in EIS, which is a couple years long uh, uh, process at least, usually. And it involves many, many agencies, federal, state, often local agencies as well in certain respects, um, uh, tribal nations, uh, commercial interests, fisheries, you know, all and sundry participate in that. So I wouldn't say that it's front-loaded. It, it's that it's continuous. There's kind of multiple steps where the environment is, is considered to make sure that at every major step in the development process, there's another, hey, let's look. Let's make sure we understand what the impacts would be. The other thing you raised was supply chain, and that's actually a, a tougher nut to crack in some respects because the federal government doesn't have statutory authority to, you know, ensure supply chain. You know, that's that's left up to the marketplace in the United States. Um, whereas it does have statutory authority around impact analysis and permitting and so forth. And so what's happened is that the states working um uh, individually, sometimes in a little collaboration, and certainly with a lot of input from industry and developers, have been identifying what are the supply chain needs, and and where do you build it, and how do you take the existing infrastructure of port systems uh, and the like, and make the most of it, or improve it, and upgrade it. And there's environmental impact analysis around that as well. But the supply chain solutions in the U.S. are still being created. And uh, when we look to Europe, they're further along in certain regards, and that's one of them. The supply chain is a little bit clearer there than it is in the United States. But we're right at the point where I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see that fall into place very nicely. How do they figure out where there's going to be, you know, like a viable supply chain or where, and they, I'm sure they can do a lot of these studies to figure out, you know, like you said, the wind data and other stuff like that. But are, are they, is, it seems like it's a lot of hard work to probably extrapolate Will we, we be able to get factories built on the shoreline? Like, is the, you know, the, the undershore cabling going to make sense in this area? I mean, how complex is it get where they're trying to forecast where supply chain might improve or perhaps even degrade over time? 
It is definitely a big analysis. It, it is uh, juicy and complex, um, uh, and it exceeds uh, many of the skill sets that I have uh, because you, you take commercial experts who are analyzing supply chain and not just analyzing what's there but what will be there and what the developer uh, itself might be able to contribute toward making the supply chain stronger in certain in certain respects. You also have analysis of the wind resource, but also the environmental constraints that might be there. You know, no one wants to develop a, a project, even a, a renewable energy project, in a manner or in a place where it is environmentally unsuited. So there's a lot of analysis of that because that might constrain the amount of area within the lease area that you actually can develop, Right. Uh, responsibly. So there's commercial analysis, there's environmental analysis, there's a lot of analysis of the power market. Because you have to remember, once you've generated this power way down the road, and you've developed this thing, you have to sell it into the marketplace. And you know, what's the pricing going to be x years in the future for a kilowatt hour. And you know, sometimes I think about how, you know, I'm your typical guy, perhaps who has no idea how fashion works. And you and there's these people who predict the color for ne- of the season next year. And I think that's yeah. just brilliant and amazing. And, and then I think, yeah, but then there are power specialists who like predict the cost of power eight years from now. And I'm like, I have no idea how they do that. But they do because they have a lot of number crunching, a lot of wisdom there. So all the analysis in short, is it's multidimensional to try to figure out is the market going to be there for the power? Is there enough supply chain to handle it? Can we construct it at a cost and a levelized cost that will be attractive in the marketplace going forward? And then you place your bets, you know, you decide what is your whole card number when you go into the auction? And uh, you compete against others who sharpen their pencils too on what the price and the value uh, ought to be for that lease. Yeah, so that it's really interesting to me about um, predicting the future future value of these assets because it's something I've been looking into recently quite a lot. And I was just on an um, I think it's an IEA report that compares the levelized cost of energy and the the value of those energies in you know certain periods in the future. And I was looking at the U.S. analysis compares you know onshore wind, offshore wind, solar, solar firms with batteries, all these different things, and you know it gives you like a percentage if the um, if it's above 100%, then it means you've got more value than the cost and the opposite if it's below. And one thing I did notice is that offshore wind, it's it's more valuable than um, onshore wind because, you know, you've got a better um, resource and maybe you're closer to loads and um, matching the demand profiles better. But we still see that the value-adjusted cost of energy for offshore wind is much lower than for onshore, you know, like it's twice as expensive but doesn't provide twice the value. And I'm just wondering if you have a, a comment on that because uh, it's a question I've been trying to answer. Why is everyone so interested in offshore wind when if you look at the economic analysis, it never comes out the the best value option, but we're seeing more and more and more interest um, do you have an opinion on that? Like, do you think that the analysis is wrong, that things are going to change in the future? What is it that keeps people being so excited about this, um, this yeah, resource? You know, it's a, it's a great question. And so I'm so glad you've asked it because, you know, at, at its simplest, the question is, wait a minute, isn't offshore wind really expensive to produce? And how would it ever compete in the marketplace against cheaper sources of energy? That's, that's a, a, a less eloquent version of your question. And, and I, and I think, uh, there are a number of answers. One is, 
I don't have to guess at it. I can look at the data and watch what's been happening over the last uh, 12 plus years in the U.S. and and more than that in in Europe. And I've been dealing with offshore wind for a long time. Um, What I've seen is that cost plummet. It goes in one direction, goes down, 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 and keeps going down. And there are reasons for that. Um, Some of the reasons are technological, right? Better technology, more efficient production of energy, um, less margin needed, better estimation of costs of construction, uh, installation. We're wrapping our heads and our arms around the problems and challenges and solving them. And when we have solutions to technological problems, we have cost reduction um, almost inevitably. It's marvelous. And once you've done one project and then you do five and then you do ten projects, you get really good at something as complicated as this. Uh, you, you just get practice. And so we've been watching that happen over the last decade in multiple countries. And so that that price is going down. And so at the same time that the market is saying, well, the price is high, relatively speaking, to some other forms of energy. But I also see where it's heading. And it's heading to a point of convergence. And then it's heading to a point below convergence. That is to say, cheaper. And what we're really saying about that is that there is a, if you will, a natural price or value proposition that offshore wind has, not a number as such, not a specific number, but there's a natural price point or range where it should be able to sustainably be offered um, in any given region. And in the beginning of any industry, what you see is that you're way above that natural value equals price. You're at a price much higher than value. Why? Because you're still figuring out how to deliver it. But as you get that better, you're driving that cost down to its actual value, and its value is very good. So there are a couple of reasons for that value. Um, and you mentioned one of them, and, and I want to elaborate on that a, a moment. When you think about it, an offshore wind project is maybe 15 miles offshore, so how long does it take you to drive 15 miles? It's not that far. Well, in Washington, D.C., where we both apparently <laughs> yeah. are, you know, four to five, four to five hours, give or, give or take. Time well, that's right. But not only that, if you're, if, if, if you're trying to, quote, drive or, or even walk through uh, Capitol Hill, you know, movement are, is by inches in Capitol Hill. It's sort of like World War I and the Battle of the Sun. But in any event, um, what, what, what you find when you look at that is, hey, we can generate – a lot of power, you know, a thousand megawatts. Think, you know, gigawatt project. Think, think of um, five hundred thousand houses being served by that. That that's a lot of power. So, fifteen miles from load, meaning the place where the power needs to be used, that's like this close. So that's inherently valuable. When you when you juxtapose it with other forms of power, uh, you can generate, you know, power from oil. Uh, for example, which has so many uses in our economy. But if you're going to use oil for power, you have to find it somewhere. You got to bring it to the surface. You got to pipe that oil often a thousand miles or hundreds of miles. You need to get to a refinery. It needs to be refined. Then you have the refined product that's got to go another couple hundred miles somewhere through a refined product pipeline to a power plant. And then it's, it's burned and you generate the energy. And then that energy has to move. We're talking hundreds of miles here, and that 15 miles is looking like it's really efficient, and it is. Mm, that's an interesting perspective. I haven't thought about it that way. Yeah, when you don't have to factor in all those other th- moving pieces to get it converted into electricity, that does make a lot of sense. 
It does. And, you know, what's interesting about it is that when you do look at, say, natural gas and oil, those are fantastic sources of energy. Um, and they have tremendous uses in many respects, uh, not just for power production, but for making the chair I'm sitting in and much of the electronics that we're using right now. So incredibly valuable. Um, they've been around long enough that we've been able to drive the cost structure to a great degree of efficiency in, 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 the, in those industries. And that's what we're about doing right now in the offshore wind industry as well. So I want to play a little, a little game. Imagine I stop you in an elevator and I'm the CEO of a new startup energy company and I've just gotten a ton of funding and say we've got a half a billion dollars and we want to bid on one of these um, leases and we want to start an offshore wind farm. Can you give me the, say we had 50 floors, obviously no buildings that tall here in DC, but say we had a, a minute and you just give me the step-by-step. -step. Here's the first thing you have to do. Then the next thing, then the next thing. What's, what's the this most simplistic overview of just the general steps that it takes to go from conception, like I have an energy company, to we have a, a now under construction offshore wind farm? Well, um, as the doors of the elevator close, uh, my first thought is, if you just got $500 million, you're taking me to a drink. <laughs> and, uh, so let's, let's, let's go to a bar, and then we'll talk about okay, everything else fair, we're interested fair. in. Is that, is that fair? Okay, so um, you know there are two there's – there's right at the beginning a choice you need to make left door A or, or right door B. If you go through door A, um, you go and compete for your own lease. That would be step one. By going and participating in an auction, you get qualified as a bidder uh, by the federal government. You participate in the auction. You compete with your money and, and, and hopefully you win a lease. And then you start the development project uh, uh, protocol. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Do that step a wise program. But door B is also interesting. Instead of going and getting your own lease and developing it all on your own, you could say, I've got a pot of money. And that guy over there has a pretty cool offshore wind project already in development and has a lease. I'm going to buy my way into that. Does that guy want to spread some of the cost, allow me to buy in to a project um, in one way or another, stock or asset, a bunch of different ways to construct that so that I can begin to participate in a project? Um, those are there are two different ways um, uh, to enter the marketplace for offshore wind, and they are, have different attractions. And some might well, some developers might well pursue both strategies. At some point, whether you bought in or you won a lease, you you reach the same point, which is okay. We have to develop this thing. So, what are the steps? The first step after you've got the lease, actually signed and delivered. Um, is you develop your SAP. You develop the site assessment plan that uh, you're entitled to develop and submit to the agency. That's what the lease gives you, the exclusive right to do that. And you say, here's the protocol that I'm going to use to assess the site, meaning the entire lease area, really, uh, for uh, subsurface issues, surface issues, uh, marine issues, benthic community, a bunch of different things. Have a lot of scientists that you then hire uh, either internally or in conjunction with outside consulting firms that are technically expert at this particular set of, of science uh, uh, needs. And you work with that team to develop the SAP, get it approved by BOEM um, uh, as adjusted by them, and then you implement that. That might take a year or two to do all of that. Uh, and then you take that data and you are working along parallel paths then 
One path is the approval pathway where you're going to develop what's called a construction and operations plan, a, a COP or a COP. And it takes a few years to develop that COP and submit it to the government. And it contains all of your plans. This is how we're going to build it. This is how it's going to work. This is exactly where the turbines will be placed. These are the alternative locations for landfall of the export cable for the power. You, know, you have to get the power made by the turbines and then get that power through a cable all the way to shore and interconnect with the power grid. So all of that, it becomes part of the COP. But that's just one track. Then you have a parallel track, and that's the commercial track. So that money needs to go to more than just studies and analyses and planning. It also needs to be invested in talking to the major manufacturers and others who can produce the stuff you need. You need a cable. You need a lot of cable. You need the export cable, which brings the power to shore, but you need the inter-array cable. You need cabling running from tower to tower so that all the individual points, towers, at which power is generated can be aggregated collected in a grid of cables and then sent to a substation offshore and then from that substation through an export cable onto shore. So you need to find cabling and it needs to meet your technical needs. And so you're working the commercial angle to set the specifications for cable. What's the right cable for this region and the kind of conditions? If we were in the Arctic, they would be different than mm -hmm. in the mid-Atlantic. Thankfully, we're not in the Arctic. Anyone <laughs> wants to build offshore wind there? That's probably after I retire. So, you know, you have the whole commercial side, the turbines. You have to start figuring out how do I get the right turbine size? And that's really crucial because the turbine size has been getting bigger. And on a pace where early in the development of a project, you might have on the market a, an eight megawatt turbine that's available. But you may, pro, you may well in conversations with commercial partners realize that a 15 or 16 or 18 megawatt Wow, uh, turbine might be available at the time you would need it in the future. So you have to negotiate your way toward an agreement to supply or procure turbines on a cost-effective basis. Then there's some other tricky things that you have to keep um, in mind. Like you said, every every year they're coming out with a bigger turbine, and especially every you know this takes three, four, five years. How how do they figure that out? I mean, as they're developing specs and they're trying to get everything to fit the initial, you know, planned turbine size, how much flexibility do they have? Can they really adjust from eight to, to 10 or eight to 12? Is there sort of like a percentage, like maybe you go 20% bigger, but not, not more than that, or else it just throws the whole plan into chaos. So how does that all work? Well, it is difficult, first of all. Uh, and there are a couple of um, approaches that have been taken with the support of the federal agency. And I'll start with a policy that they developed, the federal agency, BOEM, uh, to facilitate dealing with that uncertainty. They um, uh, prepared and, uh, and issued a policy that we colloquially refer to as PDE, Project Design Envelope, PDE. And what that stands for um, is uh, – what it means is that a developer can propose – a project in the COP, the construction and operation plan, that big document that's very descriptive, can propose not just a very specific project that has only certain specs, but a range of specs. You might propose something that will use turbine sizes from 8 to 12 megawatts in size, just to take mm -hmm. a range as an example. Because you don't know exactly where it may fall. If you have 12 megawatts, it would probably be fewer number of turbines which might have environmental benefits because you're disturbing 
less of the footprint of the ocean bottom if you have fewer turbines and and so forth. So um, being able to propose essentially ranges for specs of your project is something that is permissible um, and can be a, a really important tool to allow the permitting to proceed even as the commercial discussion is maturing towards certainty around a single turbine size. Um, so it's a pretty it's a pretty involved process, uh, but it's also a public process, which I think is important. What you propose to the government and the ranges that you propose are made public. They're subject to a lot of discussion, so that everyone knows exactly what flex the developer is asking for. And and I have another question about that public comment period. I mean, if I'm just you know I'm just a citizen, do I really have a meaningful say if I go to one of these public comment uh, meetings? I mean, how, how does that work? I mean, how influential are they for just average Joe to come out and voice his or her opinion? It's extremely important that people um, do voice their opinions uh, and that they can. Um, and uh, I, I would say it's it's as important as any other civic um, duty and and privilege that we have in the United States. We get to vote. You know, we get to vote for elected officials and, and we get to participate in federal decision making, including about offshore wind. So if there are folks out there who are contemplating whether it matters to them to participate in a public comment or, or write in a letter uh, that comments um, uh, on some proposal that the federal government is making uh, relating to offshore wind, I would encourage them. They should do that. Uh, uh, as for whether it matters, you bet. Not just uh, because the law requires it to matter, and I'll explain why in a moment, but because I've watched these agencies over 30 years um, and work with them, and they they read those comments, and they listen to those comments, and they study those comments, and they digest them and analyze them in lots of different ways to try to understand what really um, is important out there, what are we overlooking, what have we miscalibrated in our assessment of something's, something's importance or, or its effect on a community. There's a reason agencies go out to the public. It's because the agency knows they're not all-knowing. They need public input. Um, so I would say it absolutely matters, and I would encourage people who have views uh, to articulate them. Kevin, when a, a lease pack, a, a, a bid package goes in for a lease, what are the top two or three critical pieces that makes a bid successful? Is it prior history? Is it uh, – the energy is already sold and you already have a way to get it on shore. What are those critical pieces that help a bid succeed for a lease? Super question um, and, and an interesting answer I, I, I'll hope to illuminate. The auctions for leases, for offshore wind leases, have to date been uh, financial auctions, uh, meaning uh, they're basically um, – a stepwise, one round, bid round after another, a stepwise progression in price for an auction. And um, so what that means is that the agency is, is not evaluating your resume and picking the winner based on their desire for you as the best candidate overall, much like you would do an employment review and you'd gather all the applications mm -hmm. and, and just sort of say, you know, I like Jimmy. <laughs> but 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 Mary's actually better than Jimmy, and so I'm gonna we're gonna hire Mary. It doesn't work that way. Instead, they say 
we're going to, before the auction, require everyone to submit their qualifications, like their CV, so to speak, uh, financial qualifications and experiential, practical, technical qualifications as a prospective developer. Submit that to the agency months and months before any auction happens so hmm. that they can be qualified or disqualified as a bidder. You only get to participate in that auction after you've been reviewed for your financial and technical and legal qualifications. So what's interesting about that is that it means the auction is not a free-for-all of subjective decision-making by the federal government saying, ooh, I like Mary. No, I like Jimmy. You know, who's it going to be? And it comes down to, you know, someone in the government rolling the dice or flipping a, a coin right in behind closed doors. Mm -mm, not at all. You have a very transparent process of qualifying for all the bidders. All the bidders are named uh, prior to the auction so the public can see that and they can see it themselves. Who else is there? Usually 10, 20, can be 30 bidders. Lots, lots of folks are usually qualified. And then they participate in an auction and the auction as a result of this prior work can really focus in on the valuation of the lease. And so the auction of the lease so far, these auctions have proceeded essentially always on a, on a price basis. And at each round, the government says, if we were to offer this lease at, I'm going to say $500,000, how many bids would I receive? And hmm. you sort of buy a computer, you, right. you indicate your interest. <laughs> And then the next round, it's at a higher price and next round higher and higher until there is only one bidder left standing. And at that point, you have the highest bidder who is not necessarily the final winner. They're identified as a prospective candidate, if you will, for getting the final lease award. But there's a review process that then happens before the award. And this is important wow. because, again, just like subjectivity has not been a major part of the actual auction to date, which I think is a good thing. Um, also, at the end of the process, it doesn't just – the government didn't just blindly issue the lease to whoever was last standing. There's a, a Justice Department review. The U.S. Department of Justice reviews the conduct of the auction, tries to make sure that there was no foul play, no uh, uh, loss of integrity in the process of the auction to make sure that, in fact, um, an award – to uh, this final bidder would be an appropriate outcome and, and not uh, obtained by inappropriate means. And so far, the off offshore wind leasing auctions have been conducted successfully with high integrity, and there's been no blemish to date, which is a real credit to the industry and to the agency. Mm, sure is. And how are these prices established? You know, it seems crazy to think, like, what is the ocean worth to someone, right? I mean, especially <laughs> when it's this is new for the U.S., where do those prices come from? It is, in fact, one of the interesting complexities about offshore wind. How, how do you develop um, the price uh, for something that's never been sold before? And remember, we're only a few years out from the very first commercial-scale lease auctions. And um, if you go back, uh, if you're really an insomniac, uh, you, you can go back and look at the bid price rounds, so each the price at each round of bidding for some of the early auctions. And what you'll see is really interesting. So, for example, there was uh, an auction for uh, offshore New York, at least offshore New York, and it, prog it progressed so many rounds that it lapped into the next day. And there's a new round every 20 minutes. 
It literally, they oh. had to press pause at the end of the day one and say, we ought to go to bed. <laughs> We're going to pick up at nine in the morning. And they had not planned that it would go that long. And why did that happen? Because they started really low. The government started wow. with a with a bid price at that first round because they didn't know where to start that was, as it turned out, kind of low. So then you look at the increments. You know, every 20 minutes they went up. But did they go up by the same amount every time? Well, for a while they did. And then they're like, nothing's happening. We need to start taking bigger steps and then bigger, bigger steps. And then there were still a lot of bidders. And they began to realize, actually, we really started in mm. the wrong place. Okay. Wow. So the other comment on that is, where did that end up? That ended up with a record-setting price, that particular auction, and there was commentary in the in the in the press saying, "Oh, this is the most ever paid, and this is really striking," uh, and and some said that's that's a lot of money. How will they ever do this profitably? And others were saying, "This is awesome. It's an indicator of the strength of the uh, burgeoning offshore wind market." What's interesting is then to look at just a couple years later, the auction prices. We're double and treble. Wow. Double and treble that. And so what we're finding is that figuring out what the value of a given lease is at a given moment in time in the marketplace is exceedingly difficult. And that's one reason we do auctions. Auction theory is an important element here. I won't drag you through all of it. But the idea is when you really don't know at what price to offer something, have an auction. Make it public. Make it transparent. Make it integrity uh, rich, uh, but allow the market to work with you to figure out exactly what that price is. And now that that's been established, I'm sure it, that price is tethered to some percentage of what a developer, you know, has, like if I have a hundred million dollars to spend on a project, um, have you seen that like this, the lease is a, is a certain percentage of that? I would imagine that that's sort of maybe levelized over time. It's like 8% or 13% or obviously you couldn't spend 80% of your available money on the lease itself. Um, have you seen any anywhere where it becomes semi-consistent? Like it's typically in this sort of range of overall budget? I think in the U.S. where the market is, is still uh, developing uh, precedent, um, there is not a uniform answer to that. Uh, over time... That may well uh, come to be the case. It's further along in in the UK and and in the other North Sea countries where offshore wind got an earlier start at the utility scale. But the other thing that I would say is this. Remember that the lease does not allow you to actually build Mm -hmm. the project. You have to spend a lot of money and a lot of time, many years, to actually develop a proposed project and submit that for further public review and approval by the government. So when you're when you're valuing the lease, you're really just valuing the opportunity to then later try for further approvals, which could be denied. And if they're denied, you have no project and yeah. your lease is valueless. So it's it's a it's an interesting economic uh, uh, set of uncertainties. And if you get a project that is approved and goes ahead, do you then need to pay additional costs or is the ocean space free after that? And how, how is that value decided? You do. There are quite a number of uh, payments that you need to make. You have to make uh, payments. Let's start at the auction. When, when you first um, are fortunate enough to win and actually be awarded a, a lease, uh, after the DOJ review and so forth, you have to do a couple of things. You need to pay the bid amount called the bonus bid. And that's like a big honking check. 
uh, cash on the barrel head, as they say. Uh, and you need to uh, post uh, financial assurance. And you need to um, uh, pay the first year's rent. So th- there's that concept that a lease is a, is a real estate document. You know, it, it, it extends certain limited rights over a specific geographic area. And so the concept of rent kind of makes sense. Um, and so you have to pay rent on a yearly basis. And then what happens over time is as you continue to develop the project and you get further approvals, if you get them, in particular, if you get a COP approval to construct and then operate a, a project, then you're installing, you're still paying rent every year. Every year you're paying rent. But then as you install and then ultimately turn on, if you will, the power switch, it doesn't quite work like that. But nevertheless, once you, once you start um, uh, presenting power to the marketplace, then um, the rent is abated to the degree or the percentage that you are now generating power across the lease area. That's one way to formulate it. It can be formulated otherwise. And you have a different kind of payment that relates to the amount of power or the capacity of power that you are in a position to deliver. And you start paying on that. That's a royalty. And that um, that's similar to oil and gas production in the offshore, where the concept has long been, hey, once you develop oil and, or gas and bring it to the surface in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, say, you have to pay royalties based on the price at which you're selling it into the marketplace. So that royalty and rent are complementary concepts that come into play at different stages of the development of your project, but they all involve payments to the federal government uh, for the use of that area. Kevin, does that also, that some of that rent and royalty money get paid to the state, county, cities, local, locally? Or is it because it's all offshore in federal waters, all that revenue generated just goes straight to the federal government? So there are a couple parts to a complicated answer there. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the payments are, yeah, the, the payments are made to the federal government. Uh, by statute, and the statute, uh, the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, provides, um, especially in the oil and gas context, offshore development, provides a state cut, if you will, okay. a percentage of royalties that the state may recover. But in the offshore context, I, I would offshore wind context, I would direct your attention to some other kinds of financial uh, payments and benefits that the state and local. Uh, communities uh, get because they're very substantial. And um, for example, in in some of the states uh, in the mid-Atlantic where there's been offshore wind development in progress, uh, the states have negotiated um, purchase agreements like power purchase agreements. So they're in this in state of New York, for example, they're, they're agreements to purchase offshore renewable energy credits associated with the power. And as part of those contracts, which are long-term purchase contracts, which support the economic viability of the offshore project, the state has been requiring a number of things, including investment, dollar-denominated investment, large-scale, by the developer in supply chain, in uh, vocational training, in in a whole bunch or potentially a wide array of different forms of investment, community and social investment, economic investment, directly into the state and directly into the communities that are either impacted by 
uh, or just simply stand to benefit from the development of offshore wind. And those are big dollars, uh, many, 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 many millions of dollars. So those sure. are very significant form of financial benefit to state and localities that comes from offshore wind. All right, so we're going to move on a little bit uh, to to next year, which this seems like it's going to be a, a pretty exciting year for offshore wind. Um, so let's kind of start there. Obviously, Vineyard Wind is uh, construction will be underway in 2022. And of course, um, first question here, here for you, there's been a number of new lawsuits uh, targeting Vineyard Wind for, I mean, various lawsuits. Um, without commenting on any of them specifically, are these lawsuits that are brought by different advocacy groups and environmental groups and just local local groups, um, are, do they pose a significant threat to not even specifically Vineyard Wind, but just to get any of these development projects um, happening? I mean, do they really stall these these offshore wind projects or are they more just sort of like a kind of like a fly on a on an elephant's back? It's a it's a reasonable question, and, and I and I won't speak uh, directly to the lawsuits you mentioned against that particular project. I'll speak in general terms because I think your question is 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 um, of general merit, um, and, and the answer is that all lawsuits are significant um, because our judicial process is a very serious one. So um, there's no serious developer who considers a lawsuit um, uh, just a shrug of the shoulder. Uh, uh, Event or a bump in the road. Um, they're, they're all serious. And, and because they are, uh, developers spend a great deal of time, and so does the federal government, um, anticipating what might become the point of contention that would even develop into a lawsuit. And it's important uh, to understand why both the developer and the federal agencies, which are the permitting agencies by and large, um, are so attentive to that. On the developer side, as you anticipated, um, a lawsuit is a potential uh, delay to being able to progress your project. For example, if a court were to issue an injunction saying, hey, let's pause the development while we consider this case for the next year or two, that is a pause that is a commercial uh, has commercial consequences to the project. You know, you you expect it to be on a different timeline. Uh, similarly, um, one could be concerned about, uh, as a developer, just being in the news um, uh, in, in a negative light, you know, uh, where allegations are pending. You want to clear your name. You want to get in there and and um, and engage the lawsuit with, with great care. The federal government has a different set of interests, it's not that they are interested in the lawsuits because they want to protect a, a project developer. No, no, that's up to the developer. The federal interest is a public interest. And the public interest that the federal government uh, are, uh, is focused on is what are the impacts or the, the pain, which is always at the heart of a lawsuit, what are the pains or impacts that would flow from this project that we're considering approving? That's why you do such an extensive environmental impact analysis, which, by the way, is not just environmental. <clears throat> you know, we call it an EIS, but it also considers socioeconomic impacts, environmental justice impacts. Lots of different kinds of impacts are part of that review. And the federal government spends literally years 
with a developer, an expert, independent expert scientists working on that impact analysis and trying to make it robust for a very specific reason, among others, they want to know what all the uh, pain points would be so that we can try to mitigate them or avoid them to begin with or minimize them if they are unavoidable. And the federal government has a mandate to do that under under law, and it does that. And so that ends up really constricting and constraining, I think, the number of potential lawsuits out there because you've dealt with the problem up front. It doesn't mean you make everyone happy. And for those who are uh, not happy and want to challenge a given uh, federal decision about a project, what the judge is then looking at, what the court is looking at is the administrative record, the record of analysis and information that the federal agencies developed that was the basis for their decision. Because the court is not there to second-guess that decision. It's there to analyze and confirm that the federal government made a rational decision, not an arbitrary one, a thoughtful decision, not a capricious one. Arbitrary and capricious is the relevant standard here at law. And they look to that administrative record and say, did you really probe these impacts? Did you analyze them? Where did you do that? I want to see it. I want to read it. And if you have, and if the decision that you made in issuing the permit, for example, rested on a reasonable approach, then we, the court, will sustain it. And uh, that's generally how those lawsuits are analyzed. Is is that the Exxon rule that we hear? Is, am I thinking of the right thing there, Kevin, where uh, the federal government or the, the judiciary uh, looks at the uh, federal government's administrative bodies as being the experts? As long as they're transparent and clear, the judiciary the, won't overrule the federal agencies unless there's some really kind of outrageous behavior or it's been closed door, behind the scenes sort of thing. Is, is that the logic that's applied here too? Essentially, that is correct. Okay. And for a specific reason, the, the Congress issued uh, a number of decades ago a statute uh, as part of our uh, – Code of Laws. It's the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA. And it sets out exactly what the standard of review is for court considering and weighing challenges to the actions of a federal agency. And one of the standards that is applicable often in the context that we're now talking about is what we call the arbitrary and capricious standard. And what that standard asks is whether or not the agency acted rationally based on the information and analysis that it had before it, as opposed to asking, would I, the court, have a different view? You know, if you were looking at the work of a dentist, you wouldn't want the judge to say, no, you should drill it this way. Right. You'd say, no, 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 no. The dentist gets to decide where the drill bit goes. (laughs) Judge, you're here to figure something else out. And that something else is to look to make sure the dentist, or in this case, the federal agency, which is expert, Mm-hmm. has done the homework, has right. taken what's called the hard look and has analyzed it and put that analysis, show your work, you know, put that analysis in the documented record for the public to see and engage with. That's what it's testing. So moving on from uh, Vineyard Wynn and some of those uh, lawsuits, what are some of the projects that are coming up in the pipeline that that are that you're excited about? Well, 2022 really promises to be quite the rollicking year for, for <laughs> offshore wind. You know, it's uh, I, I'm very excited about the year, but, but 
you know, I have one of those normal seat belts that only goes like one way, and I feel like I need to be in <laughs> yeah. one of those, you know, Indy, Indy Five Five Hundred harness. things with it. There like you go. The, yeah. Oh yeah, I, I want the whole thing because I think this year uh, and spilling into into next year is is going to be quite something. So here are a couple of things just to tick them off uh, uh, my hand. Uh, we have in process right now um, a. a a stunning uh, number of projects that have proposed their COPs, their construction and operations plans, very specific project proposals for approval to the federal government. And they're, they're looking right now at, at nine, by my count, I think, uh, uh, COPs uh, currently, and they've just approved two. You mentioned one of them, Vineyard. The other one more recently was for South Fork, uh, another fine utility skill project in the Mid-Atlantic. And, and what we, what, what we're seeing in a, oops, what we're seeing in addition to that work is a new lease auction that's anticipated in the first quarter of 2022 called the New York Bite Auction. And there are seven or eight leases that are anticipated to be auctioned off on that occasion. That would be the largest lease auction uh, in the history of the offshore wind program and a lot of acreage uh, with a lot of project potential. So if that happens, as anticipated in the first quarter, we can see five and ten years worth of development flowing just from that one auction. Uh, whether all of those projects get built or not will depend on future approvals and public input. But that's an exciting development in the first quarter. Shortly on the heels of that, we're going to have another auction. And it's uh, further south. It's not in the New York, New Jersey Bight area, um, but rather offshore the Carolinas. Uh, uh, what's called the Carolina Long Bay uh, auction. It's it is a smaller number of of leases and and therefore smaller in acreage, but still quite important. And the first one that is so far south along the eastern seaboard. So that's exciting, and it will open up new, prospectively will 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 open up new areas for development and for bringing renewable power and its benefits to a different part of the country than has been served to date in the more than northerly part of the mid-Atlantic uh, areas. But that's not all. We, we're also going to have uh, later in the year, uh, very probably in the fall of 2022, the first Pacific um, Ocean OCS lease auction for offshore wind. And that's super exciting for lots of reasons. One, it brings offshore wind to the Pacific side. You know, there's a lot of interest in renewable power, um, uh, on the western side of the United States, it's not just California, Oregon, Washington State, and states internal to them. Um, but it's also exciting for another reason. The Pacific is different from the Atlantic as an ocean. The Atlantic is what we call shallow by comparison to the Pacific, which is deep. And it's deep right up to the shore. So any of you who've swum off the coast of San Diego or or uh, done other interesting sports um, in the Pacific, know that it is immediately deep. Um, whereas, you know, in the Atlantic, you know, you can be several miles out um, and still build a tower. In the Pacific, you can't. You can't build a tower down to the bottom of the ocean. You have to float. Uh, you have to float your turbine that's going to be generating the power. So this would be the first lease auction in fall of 2022 that involves not just a new geographic area, the Pacific, but also the prospect of entirely new and different and very sophisticated technology, floating offshore wind technologies, where you have to imagine the turbine structure um, resting not on a single tower, top of a tower that's bolted into the seabed, but rather on a floating construct 
that had some guy wires tethering it so it didn't float off entirely, but is a movable beast. And uh, there's a lot of engineering that goes into making that work to maintain the optimal positioning of floating offshore wind uh, uh, turbines and to keep them able to generate uh, power in an optimal range of wind speed and productivity. So that's exciting. And those seem like those would be complicated as well with that sort of flexibility that we talked about earlier. Because if, say, you know, you start that project with eight megawatt turbines in mind, and then you end up using 12, the floating structure might be completely different. And not to mention that it seems like floating structures are really rapidly evolving now, as we've talked in previous episodes, that the since they're still pretty new, there's not like one design that's really won out yet. Would there still be flexibility for all the engineering there as well? Uh, there's a lot of flexibility that will be needed uh, on the commercial side, on the developer side, uh, and on the agency side, I think, to figure our way forward for the first for the first round of development projects involving floating technology. Now, that having been said, it's, it's a technology that has been uh, tried and tested elsewhere in the world, and it works. Um, I've had the privilege of working with some of the, that technology, and there's some important demonstration projects uh, in the North Sea, for example, um, uh, that have been running for years very successfully. So we know a lot about floating technologies. Uh, it's it's not uh, uh, entirely a bet on the come or a blind uh, guess here. This is very sophisticated work that's been uh, many, many years in the make. What's new is bringing it to the United States and having the United States benefit from that transfer of technology, knowledge, and experience that's been gained elsewhere in the world and, and bring that into the United States, also with indigenous capabilities, indigenous to the U.S. Uh, capabilities and technologies and manufacturing capabilities. So it's a very exciting moment, I think, for the country as well as for individual developers who are going to compete in that auction. So speaking of, of your work, um, you and uh, your firm Bracewell, You've talked about how your one of your goals is to help shape this regulatory policy in the U.S. since it's new and it's developing, and we haven't had you know any of these offshore projects really come to fruition yet. Um, can you talk us through some of some of the regulatory hurdles and some of the work that you and your firm are trying to do to make this easier uh, on everyone here to have you know clean, renewable offshore wind energy? It is a goal of mine uh, because. And I've been working on offshore wind for a dozen years uh, at least, um, and and I've spent thirty years working uh, on energy projects and the and the federal policies that um, are the architectural premise for permitting and authorizing and and regulating energy projects of of all kinds. Um, offshore wind is a particularly interesting. Uh, form of energy project, and the policy architecture there is still incomplete. Um, maybe a better word is it's still in development. It's still evolving. It's still finding its optimization. And that's because uh, we're learning. We're still learning about technology. The technology is changing rapidly and it's improving so rapidly, which is wonderful. And we need a policy architecture that uh, adapts to the reality of new technology. We don't want a federal permitting uh, policy or, or philosophy or approach that is so hidebound that it ends up being um, a constraint and a constriction as um, as these developments of technology and, and simply commercial development, supply chain development proceed. We want the federal government to be able to dance hip to hip with the marketplace. 
The reason for that is not just efficiency and making it, as you said, easier, uh, but making it better. And by better, I mean, some would say, oh, it's easier if we don't allow the public to participate so much. Mm, not so. I would disagree strongly with that. Better is um, that the the public absolutely participates, as I've said many times in our conversation today, uh, along the way, and they should always be able to do that. Uh, the policy architecture, rather, that we're talking about I evolving has to do with dealing with flexibility and uncertainty. You know, the easiest thing is a policy uh, approach that says, come to me, developer, when you have every last detail ironed out and put into a final engineering diagram. And then I'll begin to look at look at your project. That's not an effective way to be a regulator because no developer will do that. No developer will come to you with that. It's not commercial. It's not commercially viable. And so the regulator would fail in its duty actually to, to um, uh, lease appropriate uses of the outer continental shelf, including for the use of offshore wind. And that is its mandate. So what we've been doing over many years, to answer that part of your question, is um, is to work with developers, but also engage directly with the federal agency in dialogue. And, and we've been doing that for many years. A dialogue about how environmental impact analysis can be done really effectively uh, and comprehensively and efficiently. Um, how the approach to impact analysis in the regulatory structure can be modernized to reflect new communication technologies. Things don't need to be sent by mail anymore. In fact, a lot of people don't get their mail anymore. They don't get phone calls on landlines. There are a bunch of things that are kind of obvious that we need to modernize, and there are others that are a little bit more intricate. But we've been involved in that process for many years. Specifically as it relates to offshore wind, um, one of the things that I've been excited to see is the dialogue that's currently unfolding between the federal government and the public, including developers and other stakeholders, around social impacts and to what degree social impacts should be analyzed as part of and, and embedded in, for example, lease auctions. Should they just be accounted for in the impact analysis and mitigation strategies? Or should there be, for example, some non-price, non-dollar factors that contribute to who the winner is in an auction? Should there be a change, in other words, from the description I gave earlier about how auctions round to round are really price-based auctions that lead to a single developer. Those are interesting questions of policy, and um, we're definitely participating on behalf of our clients and, and otherwise in that dialogue to, to try to make sure that at the end of the day, we continue to have a flexible, well-adapted, and modern government approach to what is such an important resource for the United States. So are you saying with the social impact that, you know, say two developers both put in a bid for $10, but developer A says, I'll give you $10, but I'm also going to pump $4 into the local community and do this, 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 and this. Is that kind of what you meant by that? Would that at least could go for $10, but... <laughs> in my in my bizarre, in universe <laughs> F, there's, they're $10. Yeah, yeah. You probably never put a nickel in a machine for a Coke. I, I, I put nickels in a machine and, and actually got a Coke coming out. I put quarters in it. I put this this whippersnapper put quarters in a machine back in the day. Oh, there you go. That's great. Um, well, getting away from nickel pop, uh, as they used to call it. Um, the, the the answer is well. That's right now in discussion. I mean, literally right now, because there's a proposal that's out there from the federal government concerning 
Well, should the government award of leases look also to the social investments that are promised or committed by a particular developer or, or, or bidder on a, on a lease? There are many questions bound up in that. You know, one might think at the first blush, well, being aware of social impacts, that's a good thing. We should do this. And of course, being aware of social impacts is extremely important, has always been important in, in offshore wind development and other forms of development. The, the deeper question, though, is, is the auction the right place for that? Or are there more effective ways and more appropriate uh, places to engage uh, the question of commitment to social investment? And, and who should be the arbiter of that? Should it be the communities served by it? Uh, or should it be a regulatory authority saying, hey, I know what you need, and I know how much, and I'll tell you how you're going to get it. Sometimes that is what is needed um, in, a, in a national federal uh, system that we have, uh, but not always. Um, in the United States, we have um, uh, a general precept that we don't immediately rush to the federal government to determine our social context. Um, we, we have other entities and institutions that help us to do that, local government, state government, and individuals. And so part of the question, uh, coming back to you, Dan, part of the question, looking within your basic question about, well, is it as simple as $10 bid plus $4 of investment in social uh, uh, c concerns? That's $14. That's better than just a $10 bid without a social investment. It's actually more complicated in an interesting way. And it raises questions of who's the right entity? Uh, what's the right process? Is the auction process a place to do that? Are there more effective and flexible and, and responsive, responsive to need, community needs, uh, ways to do that? And that's being sorted out right now. And I think that's another reason why 2022 is going to be very exciting. What's your what's your gigawatt pipeline, and can we make? Because Australia, I was at a, <laughs> I've been paying attention to Australian offshore um, development pipeline recently, and it's surprisingly large in the tens of gigawatts. Can we can we make a, a bet for who's going to be winning in twenty thirty? I mean, it seems crazy. Australia's got zero now. We've got ten percent the population, but we're moving fast. Who's who's going to win in twenty thirty? Who will have the most? The most capacity? Would you would you be willing to take a, a bet on that? You, you've thrown the gauntlet down, <laughs> um, Dan. We definitely need that drink. <laughs> Probably among the three of us, we'll invite Alan along as well as our as our referee on right. that question. You're going to need a referee. Um, so uh, uh, there you go. So a couple things. Um, I'm bullish uh, on the United States. I think that the what we've seen. Um, and what I mentioned is the hockey stick, kind of the word, yeah. that point in the inflection of the curve. I think that's going to be sustained. I'm sure we'll have headwinds here and there along the way. Um, that's, that's true of any, any new industry development, but we're, we're going to hit 30 by, um, 30 gigawatts by 2030. And, um, you know, we've got, we've got at least 20 projects out there right now that are in development, uh, that are under review. We have nine that that are in the final stage of review of their uh, construction plans. That's you know, I, I won't give you the exact megawattage, but nine will equate to roughly you know ten gigawatts worth of projects um, right there, and it's just twenty twenty two. That's pretty exciting. So I think we'll hit our mark of thirty gigawatts by twenty thirty. Here's the one thing I have learned: never underestimate a Norsey. 
Because the moment you do, it becomes a matter of personal pride. <laughs> They'll do anything to make sure you're wrong. And they're tough. They eat all that Vegemite and other strange, strange yeah. substances. They have a lot of very hardy people as Australians. You know, what is Vegemite anyway? I mean, I, it's like you, the nutrition label. I don't know how that reads. It's salt. It's 99% salt. It's like a yeast tar, isn't it? There's a yeast component to it. It's a, it's a byproduct from beer. Yeah. So in any event, um, I, I hate to bet against Australia, but the way I'll frame it is we're going to hit our mark. The question is, uh, Rosemary, are you going to hit yours? Well, Kevin, we could talk all day about this, but uh, we've run, a, run aground on our time. Um, where can people follow up on you and uh, your law firm, Bracewell? Well, it's been great talking with all of you. I've really enjoyed it. It's a great topic. I'm glad you're handling it uh, so deftly. Uh, Bracewell's a been my professional home for 30 years. I love it. You'll find us on the web, of course, at www.bracewell.com. Uh, you'll even find me uh, uh, there somewhere on the website. Uh, even better, you'll find 400-odd uh, expert colleagues um, as well. So if, if we can ever be uh, of assistance to people in their legal needs, we're, we're happy to talk with you. Well, Kevin, thanks so much again for coming on the show. We, we really appreciate it. You're very welcome. And Happy New Year. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Win Energy Podcast. A big thanks again to our guest, Attorney Kevin Ewing from Bracewell. You can find uh, links to both him and his law firm in the description links below. Again, sign up for Uptime Tech News and Rosemary's YouTube channel. You'll also find all that information in the show notes, no matter where you listen or watch this podcast. Thanks again. Be sure to share the show, subscribe, and we will see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. This is why it just makes sense to install a WeatherGuard Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your technicians are going up tower. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.